0: You're listening to a podcast from the BMJ. Welcome to the BMJ podcast. This week saw the Health and Security Perspectives of Climate Change Conference, which the BMJ ran in conjunction with a range of climate change organisations. We'll hear from one of the organisers about the issues.
1: How climate change feeds into conflict and where is a simple one in terms of its drivers, Um, And those are essentially when you've got disease, plague, pestilence, famine, you will end up with economic collapse and mass migration. And when you have migration into areas that are resource poor, people will
0: fight. But before that, a recent qualitative paper published on BMJ.com looks at how families and social networks responded to a suicidal crisis. Christabel Owens, Head of Mental Health Research at the Devon Partnerships NHS Trust and Honorary Senior Research Fellow at Peninsula Medical School and her colleagues interviewed friends, co-workers and family members of people who had killed themselves to shed light on the difficulties they had in interpreting the signs of suicidality and deciding whether and how to intervene. Christabel joins me on the phone now. Crispel, when someone close to you kills themselves, um there's also going to be guilt and perhaps some self-recrimination. But I was interested to read that you found um, that that person wouldn't necessarily have communicated their distress uh, to those around them.
2: Yes, um, that did come out very strongly. Communication was a, was a really pervasive theme right the way through. And it did seem that those who were suicidal hadn't really been able to communicate their distress to those around them or to do so effectively. Um, For instance, there's an example we give in the paper, I think, of a young man who rang his mother several times in great distress. Um, But he did so in the early hours of the morning and he'd been drinking. And because of the drink, his mother... Dismissed it. She wouldn't talk to him. She said, "Look, go and get some sleep, and we'll talk about it in the morning." Mm. Um, and then in the morning, stone cold sober, he couldn't do it. You know, it's it's so hard. He probably needed the alcohol, the Dutch courage, you know, to to um, get up the courage to to ring her at all.
0: Sure, of course. And I
2: think you know, when you're suicidal, trying to get across to somebody else just how desperately low you are it must be incredibly difficult. And you may not actually want to do that. I mean, I think the thought of killing yourself is, must itself feel very shameful. It, it's not something that you can easily just say to somebody. Um, there were many examples in the findings um, where people had tried to communicate that in, um, in an inappropriate manner. For instance, um, young men in the pub um, one would say to his friends that he was feeling suicidal, but he'd do it in a rather a jokey, lighthearted manner, because that is the only way you can do it. You, you, you cannot do it with with the full force of emotion, you know. Um, social life, normal social life doesn't allow us to do that. Yeah.
0: There has been research before looking at warning signs for suicide. How does your uh, research fit into that, that previous literature?
2: Um, I think, really, I I want to take issue with this whole notion of of warning signs for suicide. Yes, there are lists that people have drawn up, um, things to look for. Um, They're all things that are very easy to see in retrospect, um, but not so easy at the time. Um, And this is one of the main messages of the paper, really, I think. Many family and friends didn't see anything that really rang alarm bells. Mm. Just, in most cases, very gradual shifts and intensification of existing behavior. For instance, you know, a, a quiet person becoming quieter and gradually more withdrawn. Yeah. And alongside that, signs of life as normal, persons still getting up, going to work, going about their every biz- everyday business, mm. um, and outwardly uh, um, quite normal. Um, The the other point about warning signs that I think here is very important is that it's not enough um, just to give people information. What the findings show is that the uh, the blocks to awareness and action are by and large emotional, not intellectual. So that just giving people a set of signs to look for um, and saying, you know, see this do that is not going to work because it's the emotional barriers that we have to address The fear of intruding the fear of alarming the fear of doing anything at all mm. um, You know, that's intele- that that's emotional. It, it's not it's not about giving people information. It's about um, building confidence
0: one point that came up uh in your paper and with our editors when they were looking at it was this idea that um people perhaps are worried about broaching the subject with someone that they think may be feeling suicidal in case they put thoughts into their head or, or push them over the edge or something like that. I mean, was anything like that borne out in your research?
2: It is a very common fear. Um it's often mentioned it's often mentioned that, you know, GPs have this fear. Um, that oh, they mustn't mention the S word. You know, that they don't want to put the idea in people's heads. Um, I think asking the question is possibly one of the most effective things you can actually do. We don't have any hard evidence about this, but I know the Samaritans require their volunteers to ask every time about suicide, and that they are adamant that it actually doesn't put the idea in people's heads. What it does, if the person is thinking about suicide, it gives them permission to talk about it, you know, to confess those those deepest, darkest thoughts. Mm. Um, and it's most likely that, that, in fact, they'll feel a huge relief that, you know, actually somebody's grasped how I'm feeling um, and I can talk about it. It breaks the isolation.
0: To be able to do your research, you needed to identify people who had died by suicide. And you did that from coroner's data. Now, we've published uh, in the last couple of weeks in the BMJ concerned by some people that coroners aren't recording suicide, clearly. Uh, they're using a narrative verdict instead, perhaps to protect the family from the stigma around that. And is that something that that you worry about um, for the future of, of reporting?
2: I think it is a concern. Um, I think there's, there's no doubt that um, the use of narrative verdicts is increasing, um, certainly by coroners in England, Um, and this is distorting the statistics. Um, And We we don't quite know why it's happening, except that um, coroners seem to think that they are somehow helping the families by doing this. Um, I'm not at all sure that it is helpful, possibly in some way it's actually reinforcing the stigma I'm not sure that it does help the family actually come to terms with the death. And I think the family often pin a lot of hopes on the inquest and in some ways look forward to it because they think it's going to give them an answer to the question of how the person died. Um, and I think the coroner has a responsibility to do that. And um, if there is evidence that it was a suicide, then they should actually say so.
0: Christwell, thank you very much for taking time to talk to us today. You're welcome. And the full paper with those interviews is available on bmj.com. Now, climate change is the greatest current threat to public health. That's the view of Margaret Chan, Director General of WHO, and a growing number of the world's health professionals. Less well known is the view of leading military experts, those working to prevent and manage conflicts around the world, that climate change is also the greatest future threat to security. A conference this week brought these two worlds together, health and military, to find out where common ground lies, and to discuss strategies for minimising harm to the human population worldwide. One of the conference organisers was Hugh Montgomery, Professor of Intensive Care Medicine at University College London, and Director of the UCL Institute for Human Health and Performance. This interview was recorded with him on the day.
1: Well the purpose of today's conference is to bring together um, doctors and the serving military to try to communicate the urgency of the issue that is climate change and to secondly put it in its human context because for too long I think climate change has been uh, framed as an issue that affects economies or affects polar bears and whilst those are very important to people the message that they affect us and our children in a very real sense of our survival hasn't been communicated. We think that by juxtaposing the military and medicine together, we might better communicate that message. So it it would seem a little peculiar, wouldn't it, to have doctors sitting next to serving military officers. But rather oddly, perhaps the most active group that I come across at all in the world of climate change are the military. And they're pragmatists. They deal with things in a rational and unemotive way to evaluate evidence and to assess risk. And they recognise the immediacy and gravity and reality of climate change and what it actually means for security. And they know it's a problem right now. Um, And that's an issue for everybody because any serving soldier that's fought in a war doesn't want to see another war again. My experience with dealing with officers in this way is that um, they they don't have a bloodlust. They're not out to try to fight wars. They're actually out to try not to fight wars. And they see climate change as a major driver towards conflict, which is best avoided And actually, that's why we're engaged with them. It's an immediate and real threat now. How climate change feeds into conflict and where is a simple one in terms of its drivers. Um, And those are essentially when you've got disease, plague, pestilence, famine, you will end up with economic collapse and mass migration. And when you have migration into areas that are resource-poor, people will fight. The issue that's a little bit harder to uh, determine is where those wars might take place. And it would be easy to frame them in, let's say, poorer areas of the world to say they're already resource-stretched, um, people get pushed harder, they move into another area, and it will trigger wars. And we've heard about climate change, water resource, for instance, being one of the drivers for wars in Sudan. We've heard as well about uh, grain prices going up as the Russian wheat harvest collapsed last year, um, some areas becoming net importers of grain rather than exporters, grain prices going up from, I guess, around $150 a tonne potentially tripling. And that got fed through very quickly into areas of North Africa and was one of the precipitants of the Arab Spring, in that there was, of course, a great deal of bottled up tension uh, with the political situation in those countries. But what the trigger then comes when you can't feed your children. When you can't feed your children, you tend to take to the streets. So I think we've already seen evidence of conflict being triggered by food scarcity in those cases, or water resource scarcities. Uh, triggering events but I don't think just because we're in Western Europe we're in any way uh, insulated from this at all and the Royal United Services Institute for instance has run a series of meetings on climate and security issues and this is very much raised to say um, we're not isolated if people move from central Russia and move west if people move from North Africa and southern Italy France and Spain moving north, that's a large number of people moving into areas that will themselves already be resource-stretched. And we know that every country is taking that very seriously. So India, for instance, has already completed uh, not a wall, as it's sometimes referred to, it's a a fence, it's double thickness, razor wire and steel, seven metres high, and it's 4,500 kilometres long along the entire border with Bangladesh. And it's there to keep climate migrants out. And that probably won't be because of rising sea levels, It's more likely to be because altered precipitation and glacial melts will threaten agricultural production in Bangladesh. And then you're dealing with potentially 75 million migrants moving uh, to India. So hard to predict where it's going to happen. But I think if one thing is we've been shown about global economies, the same thing applies. Uh, There aren't natural barriers to things spilling over uh, worldwide. And none of us are immune, I don't think, from that.
0: More interviews with a range of participants at that conference and the videos of the talks given are now available on the BMJ's YouTube site. Just search for BMJ Media, or one word. That's all for this week. We'll be back next week with the architect of Portugal's decriminalisation of recreational drugs. Join us then.
1: For more information about this programme and other BMJ Group
0: podcasts, please visit bmj.com.